Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. The following episode of Wish We Were Here was originally scheduled to air on Friday, November 27th, 2015, the same day as the mass shooting at a Planned Parenthood here in Colorado Springs. Colorado Springs and the Christian community here have been extensively caricatured and sometimes vilified over the years. In the wake of the recent shooting, these caricatures and memories of the culture wars from which they first arose have resurfaced. The British newspaper The Guardian recently published an article titled Colorado Springs, a playground for pro-life, pro-gun evangelical Christians. There's no denying that Colorado Springs is home to its fair share of individuals who are pro-life, pro-gun, and evangelical. However, as with all caricatures, the reality is far more complicated. This episode of Wish We Were Here, which we began working on several months ago, attempts to look beyond the caricature of evangelicalism in Colorado Springs. It's a clear, bright blue Sunday morning in early November. The view of Pikes Peak to the west is blocked by a nondescript, two-story building that looks like most of the other blocky, nondescript buildings in this industrial office park. The parking lot is about a third full. Men and women in casual western dress, blue jeans, polos, button-up shirts, cowboy boots or sneakers, and definitely no ties, filter in through a door with a sign above it that says, Living Room. This is St. James Church, not much more than a carpeted warehouse space full of 250 or so stackable chairs. There's a stage against the far wall with a keyboard, mics, guitars, and drum kit enclosed in plexiglass. People of all ages, mostly white and many over 40, greet each other with hugs and handshakes with hands on shoulders. Despite the unremarkable space, there's a warmth of familiarity about this congregation that's here to worship with the red-headed pastor working the room. Oh, good. Good morning. How are you? How are you this morning? Good. Nice good. To What's you. your name? Noel. Hello, Noel. My hey. name is Ted. Ted, nice to good see to you. Good to have you here. Yeah, thank you very much. This is Pastor Ted Haggard. A decade ago, he was one of the most powerful evangelical Christians in the country. He led a congregation of almost 15,000 people at his New Life Church in Colorado Springs. He was head of the National Association of Evangelicals, an organization with over 30 million members. And he spoke with senior members of the George W. Bush administration on a weekly basis. Evangelicalism was ascendant in American culture, and Ted Haggard was, in many respects, its poster boy. The story of his fall is probably familiar to you. MSNBC's Rita Cosby has landed an exclusive interview with Mike Jones, the man who is making these shocking allegations. Rita. Amy, Mike Jones is standing by his stunning allegations that Reverend Haggard paid him for sex about once a month for three years, as well as for methamphetamines, which he says Reverend Haggard snorted before their sexual encounters. And joining me now live is... It was nine years ago that Ted Haggard resigned from his post as pastor of New Life Church amid allegations that he'd been doing meth and sleeping with Mike Jones, a male prostitute in Denver. For his followers in Colorado Springs and around the world, it was a moment of incredible shock and disappointment. And for the city of Colorado Springs as a whole, it was a turning point. 
In the two decades prior to his fall, Haggard had been instrumental in helping to put Colorado Springs on the map as a bastion of evangelical culture in America, along with James Dobson, then head of the evangelical parachurch ministry Focus on the Family, and dozens of other religious nonprofits in Colorado Springs. Haggard presided over a culture that left the city with the nickname the Evangelical Vatican. Haggard, who declined to be interviewed for this story, left New Life in 2006. Then, in 2009, Dr. James Dobson, the conservative founder and chairman of Focus on the Family, stepped down. And along with them, the so-called Evangelical Vatican, the empire of both religious and political power that they had helped to build, began to fade. In the years since, a new generation of Christian leaders and lay people have been working to rebuild something different. This is Wish We Were Here, tales and investigations from the shadows of America's mountain. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. On this episode, we're looking at the ways evangelicalism has changed in Colorado Springs since the heady days of the early 2000s, when Christian leaders here were at the peak of their power nationally and internationally. The country has changed in many ways since then. It's been eight years since we had an evangelical in the White House, and the Supreme Court has ruled that same-sex marriage, once a defining political issue of the evangelical movement, is the law of the land. But for those in the evangelical church, and for those who've left it, how has all this change affected their understanding of their faith and the community they're part of? In this episode, we'll talk to pastors, laypeople, historians, people who identify as evangelicals, post-evangelicals, Christ followers, and agnostics. And through these conversations, we hope to get a better sense, in part, of where American evangelicalism has been and where it's going. We should say here at the outset that there is no one evangelical church or leader. There are dozens of denominations and creeds that fall under the broad tent of evangelicalism. You'll hear about Nazarenes, Charismatics, Pentecostals, and others. What unites these churches, according to the National Association of Evangelicals, is their belief that the Bible is the, quote, only infallible, authoritative word of God. To evangelize means to spread the word of God. In no way do we intend to tell the whole story of American evangelicalism, or even of evangelicalism in Colorado Springs, in one hour. What follows is a partial portrait of a community in transition. To begin with, we've got to go back. Matt Mayberry is a local historian and director of the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. As he explains, the rise of evangelicalism in Colorado Springs was about much more than faith. The, the arrival of the evangelical church movement in Colorado Springs in the 80s and 90s, and somewhat even before that, um, is really just part of a long trend in Colorado Springs of trying to find what is the next economic driver for the community. According to Mayberry, the mid-80s in Colorado Springs were a time of great economic uncertainty. Colorado Springs in 87 and 88, which is about the time I arrived in the community, was known as the foreclosure capital of the nation. Um, and that was because of the flight of jobs out of the community. And so we were looking for what would, okay, now where do we turn? The Cold War was winding down, and many of the associated military, manufacturing, and high-tech jobs that had propped up the local economy for decades were drying up as a result. The city needed a new industry to replace it. And the Colorado Springs Economic Development Corporation, or the EDC, saw an opportunity in the Christian nonprofit sector. And so we go out and actively recruit the evangelical community, from largely from California, but from elsewhere, uh, to come into the community. We are appealing to those organizations because 
Colorado Springs has always been, um, you know, very religious, um, at least in the, in the 20th century, very religious, very pro-military, very um, conservative. Um, and so we were congruent with the culture of those organizations. There were already a few prominent Christian parachurch organizations in Colorado Springs, including the international missionary group, The Navigators, and the youth ministry, Young Life, both of which had been headquartered in Colorado Springs since the mid-20th century. With the leadership of the Economic Development Corporation and a few powerful philanthropic organizations, Colorado Springs managed to convince dozens more to relocate to the city. Perhaps the most notable arrival was James Dobson's Focus on the Family, which built its headquarters here in the early 1990s. There was a 167% growth in religious organizations uh, between 1986 and 1993. And so in 1993, 9,000 people in that sector out of 211,000 employees. So you'd have to do that. So it's about 5%. I grew up all over. Patton Dodd's family was a part of that evangelical migration. I was born in Nashville, Tennessee. I grew up in Jackson, Tennessee, and then in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, in a few different homes there. And then in fifth grade, moved to Vallejo, California. Dodd would eventually become a trusted writer and editor for Pastor Ted Haggard. But in the mid-80s, he was just a kid, moving around the country with his family. My father was, at that point, the business administrator for a Bible mission, um, an organization that was trying to smuggle Bibles into the Soviet Union. This was in the mid-80s. And the founder of that organization, uh, he wanted to move his company to Colorado Springs, Colorado. Though he came from a Southern Baptist family, Dodd wasn't particularly religious himself. His parents had taken him to church a lot, but by the time he hit high school in Colorado Springs, he was far from the church-going type. Uh, you know, spent my high school years the way that a lot of teenagers do, just partying as much as I could, basically. Dodd's older sister, on the other hand, had been born again as a charismatic Pentecostal Christian while away at college. During Patton's senior year, she moved back to Colorado Springs, where she got involved at Ted Haggard's New Life Church. The year was 1993. She was always bothering me about coming to church with her and you know, she knew that I was doing drugs and that I was partying and that my girlfriend and I were sleeping together and that kind of thing. So she was, she was constantly trying to get me to go to church with her. And um, so I, yeah, began to do so my senior year of high school. New Life Church was on the rise at the time. They had recently moved out of a storefront space in a Colorado Springs strip mall and into a warehouse in the newly developed and mostly suburban north side of town. New Life was part of a new breed of evangelical church that appealed directly to young people with a worship style that Haggard himself would liken to a rock concert. So I would often go uh, sit in the back and watch people dance in the aisles and think it was kind of crazy but also kind of amazing and attractive because they all, they all seemed so happy and like they knew what they were about, you know, in a way that I definitely did not. I was drawn to it and thought it was really weird, but was still drawn to it. And, um, but yeah, I would go to church on Sunday nights, um, in that summer. And then I would often go, you know, smoke a bowl and sort of think about it all for hours on end. And I kind of had a practice of doing that for a while. 
After a few months of dabbling at New Life, Patton decided to dive in headfirst during his first semester of college at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. I had a kind of night and day reconversion experience. And uh, in the course of a few weeks, became a very zealous Christian, just like my sister was before me, and was going to prayer groups and Bible studies and becoming very involved at New Life my freshman year of college. So that's kind of where it, it's kind of where the faith journey of my adult life uh, began. His faith came in fits and starts. He transferred to Oral Roberts University after his freshman year of college, but quickly grew disillusioned with the version of Christianity that he found there. I got there and, and ORU is, is like, at the time, to me it felt like, you know, new life on steroids. It was more, more Pentecostal, more in your face with all the Pentecostal theology and expressions and, and everything fell apart for me pretty quickly because I, it, that, that is a long story that I won't go into, but ultimately I just thought if this is what Christianity is, then I, I'm not a Christian. And I lost my faith while I was there. Patton left Oral Roberts and decided to transfer one last time to Colorado State University, where he finished his degree in English. Shortly after graduation, he got a call out of the blue from a friend at New Life Church. Ted Haggard needed a writer to help him with his books and articles. I was excited to come back home and to come back to New Life, and I thought, you know, that's the only place that faith ever really worked for me, and it hasn't really worked since, but maybe it'll all fall back into place when I'm, when I'm back. And so I moved from, moved from Fort Collins to Colorado Springs and took this job and, um, yeah, hoped that it would all fall back into place uh, for me. And had a lot of trust in Ted that with enough time with him, working with him, um, that I would kind of see the light again. Even after he started writing for Ted, many of Patton's doubts persisted. But he didn't see New Life as a safe place to air those doubts. The church was a rising star, and those surrounding Pastor Haggard had to be crystal clear about their faith. Dodd watched as George W. Bush took office and brought his evangelical faith to the White House. And he was there when Ted Haggard took over the 30 million member National Association of Evangelicals in 2003. He learned to write Ted's ideas in Ted's voice with Ted's convictions. But the more he wrote, the more his doubt grew. I was incredibly conflicted over it. Especially the main issue for me, I mean, people talk about positions that the religious leaders in that era took on things like gay marriage. But for me, the, the two issues that were the most troubling were the Iraq war and the sort of trumpeting of free market economics as a sort of panacea to the world's problems. It began to seem as if the American military and the free market were God's kingdom coming to earth. And that was deeply troubling to me. Yet despite the cognitive dissonance, Dodd continued to work for Ted. He moved to Boston where he pursued a PhD in religion and English, all the while working remotely on articles and books. Even though I was working for Ted in those years, I was more watching him than I was working alongside him. I wasn't really a part of the conversation. But yeah, I definitely was more and more convinced that the Christian leadership on these issues was deeply misguided and 
wrong. His doubts came to a head shortly before the scandal broke. So in the summer of 2006, Ted and I agreed that I would sort of get on an exit ramp and and pursue my path elsewhere. And I was on that exit ramp when the sort of fall happened. I called him to buy some meth, but I threw it away. And who were you buying the meth for? No, I was buying it for me, but I never used it. Have you ever used meth? My wife and I had been questioning all things New Life and all things Ted Haggard for many years at this point, and had really kind of just had come to terms with our questions. We were not um, caught up in the cult of personality at all at this point. What was painful about it was watching the scandal happen to all of our friends who were still, you know, big believers and who could not have imagined him, you know, anything like this happening. Some of these, some of our friends began to question everything for the first time. But it was hard to watch people go through that. It was hard to watch um, Ted be in pain and his family being in pain. And it was also hard to watch his community um, learn what it meant to question. Fast forward to 2015. With its industrial chic aesthetic, tattooed baristas, and pour-over coffee counter, the Wild Goose Meeting House is the kind of craft coffee and beer bar that would be right at home in cities like New York, LA, Chicago, or Seattle. But when it opened in Colorado Springs in 2013, the Wild Goose was virtually peerless in the city. A reviewer for the local alt-weekly described it as, quote, Portland-esque. For those in Colorado Springs who craved spaces that felt urbane and sophisticated, spaces that you might find in a bigger, cooler city. The Wild Goose felt like a big step in the right direction. But there was also something slightly unusual about it. First, there was the huge bookshelf covering an entire wall of the shop. It was filled mostly with poetry, literature, philosophy, art books, design books, but sprinkled in among them were books with Christian titles. Then there were the events advertised with names like Beer and Hymns and Drinkers and Thinkers, a book club focused on texts by progressive Christian theologians. And finally, there were the owners, Russ Ware and Yemi Mobilade, who, rumor had it, used to be evangelical pastors. You had to wonder, was the Wild Goose, the new hippest spot in town, yet another Christian ministry, now dressed up as a hipster hangout? Not exactly, but it was, in its way, and still is, a part of the quiet transformation that's taken place in the Colorado Springs Christian community in the years since Ted Haggard's fall. The Wild Goose isn't, like, it's not a quote-unquote Christian coffee shop. It's not a ministry. It's not any of those things. We're just business guys yeah. uh, in, in, that, in that sense. And we were very protective of that yeah. reputation, especially in this city. That's Russ Ware, one of the owners. And this is his business partner, Yemi. Yemi Mobilati, um, one of the owners, managers, Wild Goose Meeting House as well. Um, well. What Russ didn't say is that we also like to be known as community developers. That's kind of the core of who we are. Maybe you guys could just tell me a little bit about your respective backgrounds and how you came together to start The Wild Goose. Yeah, so I'm uh, a Texas native and uh, ended up in Colorado, uh, Colorado Springs four years ago, roughly. I've been in Colorado for eight or nine years, somewhere in that vicinity. My background is mostly in church work, as is Yemi's, and both uh, in sort of the large format, evangelical, um, what we sometimes refer to as the attractional model. I was a musician 
And my, my thing was creating that experience that happens on the big stage in that format. And that's what I did for a lot of years. And that sprung out of my, I suppose, earlier background growing up Southern Baptist in Texas. And, you know, we could talk all day about that, (laughs) (laughs) but I don't want to. (laughs) Fair enough. Yummy. Um, From Nigeria, moved to the U.S. in 1996 for college. After college, worked in a business world for about five years and made my way into the kind of evangelical church realm, as Russ um, described. But we both come from that very similar context, kind of creating the experience for the big stage. So music, arts, communication, and some of those. Russ and Yemi come from evangelical backgrounds, but evangelicalism wasn't what brought them to Colorado Springs, per se. They both settled in Colorado Springs after Ted Haggard had fallen and James Dobson had left focus on the family. They knew of the city's religious reputation, but by the time they arrived here, each of them had been wrestling with the question of whether evangelicalism was right for them. Prior to moving to Colorado Springs, Russ had been working at a Christian camp half an hour outside of the city that catered to high school students and future seminarians who just graduated from college. It was during his time at the camp that his views began to diverge from those of the people around him. The camp leadership, he says, got more conservative. Meanwhile, he was beginning to share books and ideas with the residents that were considered too liberal for the camp's values. There was about a four-hour meeting I had with certain board members, which, you know, by the end of that meeting, it was as clear to me as, as it was to them that I needed to find somewhere else to be. After leaving the camp in 2011, Russ got a job at another large evangelical church in Colorado Springs. He needed the work but knew it had to be temporary and began to chart a path out of that world. For me, that model and even what it was what it meant to me spiritually had kind of run its course for me. Like I I needed to be doing something else. And I mean I needed to be doing something else. And so what I was trying to what I was trying to do was carry a lot of the core values that I had spiritually, uh, community value, arts. And, and figure out what that looked like for me moving forward because when you're trying to figure out what to do next and your resume is basically, you know, large megachurch worship pastor, but you don't want to do that anymore, your, your resume kind of is wanting. It was around this time that Russ met Yemi. Like Russ, Yemi had also grown disillusioned with the megachurch worship setting and was trying to imagine new ways to worship. He was involved in a church in Colorado Springs but found himself craving something more a version of faith that allowed him to be more engaged with the broader community. I began to realize that the, the church was more than just a Sunday gathering. Um, we were, that Christians are called to be a, a group of people to bless the city and to be able to ask the questions, if, if we weren't around, if the church wasn't around, would that even make a difference to the city? Key question. And would it be negative or positive? And would it be negative or positive? <laughs> yeah, thank you. That's, um, that's a, yeah. Like many others with roots in the evangelical world, Russ and Yemi didn't want to leave their Christian faith behind when they left ministry. They just wanted to find new ways of expressing it. The Wild Goose was their way of breaking out while still doing something that felt spiritually worthwhile, even Christian. We're trying to follow Christ. I won't even say that we even we 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 figure it out. I think the Wild Goose is an expression of, you know, of following Christ and, you know, saying that what would He do to bless the city? What are the needs in our city and you know, how can we create community? Because that's, that's where we find identity. So in a sense, um, I, I would say for me, I'm not, I'm not giving up in the church. I'm just, I don't even like the word um, Protestant or evangelical or Christianity. It's like we're following Christ. 
And in that, we're finding a different, different expressions and different way of doing it. You know, this is the tradition I grew up in. You know, and, and so even when I say Jesus was onto something, I'm at a point in my life where, boy, I don't, I don't think he was the only one that was onto something. But, but he's the one that I've learned the most about because I grew up in it. And if I had grown up in some other tradition, I would probably be feeling the same way about that one. Um, and so I don't, I, I think that um, for me, it is a, there is a comfortability with, with what I know in the world that I grew up in. And so I'm trying to figure out how to, um, how to, not, to, to have a mild ex- existential crisis rather than a full. You know, I want to embrace and hold on to what has been formed so deeply in me that for whatever reason, and some people have and some people can, but for me, I haven't been able to completely walk away or abandon some of those things that are so deeply grooved in who I am. For many non-Christians in Colorado Springs who lived through the height of the culture wars, there's a concern about what might be construed as covert intentions to evangelize. Yet, Russ and Yemi insist that the wild goose is not about evangelism. While they may have had spiritual reasons for opening it, they say they wanted the community there to be a true community, composed of people from diverse backgrounds, religious and otherwise. Nevertheless, they hope the wild goose can help to shift the terms of the religious conversation in Colorado Springs. You know, the wild goose isn't like, it's not a quote unquote Christian coffee shop. It's not a ministry. It's not any of those things. We're just business guys. Um, But a lot of stuff goes down there in terms of discussions that are of a spiritual nature and a business nature. And we could not be more pleased with that. And in as much as that fits into, I think, the changing tide in the city and even our nation um, in terms of spirituality and even Christian spirituality, you know, we're glad to be a part of that because it reflects part of who we are and our journeys. This is Wish We Were Here. We'll be right back. Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. In this episode, we're looking at the state of evangelical Christianity in Colorado Springs, a decade after the fall of Ted Haggard and the decline of the so-called Evangelical Vatican. Just a block down from the Wild Goose Meeting House sits one of the oldest churches in Colorado Springs. It's a beautiful old building with bulging stone columns and stained glass windows. For many, First Congregational is the church that they would go to if they went to church, It's long been home to Colorado Springs' more progressive Christians. It's the kind of congregation that has a float in the annual gay pride parade. In recent years, First Congregational Church has become a refuge for former evangelicals like Russ Ware. And there's a lot of overlap between the community that Russ and Yemi are developing at the Wild Goose and First Congregational. Well, probably the most succinct way to put it is that we are a liberal Christian denomination. Yes, there is such a thing. This is Benjamin Broadbent, a handsome Harvard Divinity School graduate and the pastor at First Congregational. He's been in Colorado Springs since 2000 and remembers when his church was still considered a liberal outlier among the many conservative evangelical churches in the city at the time. The very first year at the Colorado Springs Pride Fest parade, 
I'm marching with the rest of my church, which we had been doing for a number of years and have done ever since, and seeing the signs of the protesters and and being told, you know, I'm I'm marching wearing my clergy collar, being told, um, how do you feel that you're sending all of your parishioners to hell? But in the years since he arrived in Colorado Springs, he's watched as some members of the evangelical community have started to drift into his congregation. In recent years, I, I have found it fascinating that more and more people who used to identify as evangelical are, are coming to our downtown, liberal, mainline, Protestant church. And I found that the folks who are coming, they're either identifying still as evangelical, but looking for something a bit more open, a bit more open-minded, a place where they can voice their questions, their doubts, their concerns about things, and know that they're not going to get dismissed. And I've also experienced people who come and identify as post-evangelical. They no longer want to be identified with the evangelical church just because there is, there's baggage there and certain assumptions that they no longer want to have to try to defend. Candace Statz is one of those post-evangelicals. Like Russ Ware and Yemi Mobilade, she used to worship, work, and live in the evangelical world. Now she's the director of youth and adult ministry at First Congregational. Candace 10 years ago would look at Candace now and be quite shocked. Now in her early 30s, Candace has been in Colorado Springs since 2004, and her connection to evangelicalism goes way back. A pastor's kid, she grew up in her father's Assemblies of God congregation and was herself a devout Christian. I led Bible studies in school, and I remember like dragging my monster Bible around um, with me from class, you know, day to day, and organizing prayer meetings at the flagpole uh, every September. That was who I was in high school, very much so. At the age of 19, Candace moved to Colorado Springs to work with a missionary organization. It was 2004, and she immersed herself completely in the Colorado Springs evangelical community. So New Life was the church that I went to, but while I was going to New Life, I was living in community um, with this missions organization that I worked with. We lived together, we worked together, um, we traveled together, we worshiped together. And so, so that, was, that was really my community. New Life was the place I went on Sundays. Despite her strong faith, Candace began having doubts about her missionary work early on. We went to Thailand and we're in Thailand right after the tsunami in 04. And I remember being there and my whole job was to convert people and tell them about Jesus, tell them about why they needed him in their lives. And I remember thinking that at that time in my life, I was like, the answers that I have been given don't work. They're not working in this context. These people don't just need to believe in Jesus and get saved. They need food and shelter and therapy and all of these things that I can't access or I don't have the tools or the skills um, to bring them, to serve them in the way that they need to be served. Nevertheless, she stayed with the organization and remained a part of the evangelical community in Colorado Springs for many years. In November of 2006, when the Ted Haggard scandal came to light, she was still regularly attending New Life. I don't remember quite where I was when I heard about it, but there was a lot of talk about it within the community that I was in. Obviously, most of us went to New Life, um, so he was our pastor. There, there was a lot of conversation about, well, this is why we don't put 
pastors on a pedestal. You know, they're just human beings. But there should there's lots of grace for for him. But he definitely needs to take a break. He needs to go get healed. You know, he needs to repent of those sins and um, and come back to the faith. But there was a really shaking time in the in the community uh, as far as well, who do you trust? But it wasn't Haggard's indiscretions that ultimately led Candace out of the church. In 2010, she left the missionary organization and enrolled at a small liberal arts school here in Colorado Springs. By the time she graduated, her doubts about many of the tenets of her evangelical faith had become too much to bear. She brought her doubts to the evangelical church where she was also working as a worship leader at the time. But those doubts weren't welcome. She says she was forced out of her post at the church, and by extension, out of her church community. She began to mull over the question of what it meant to be an evangelical Christian of whether she could still belong to this community that she'd been a part of for her entire life. I found that I, there's something still really compelling to me about the person of Jesus um, that I couldn't get away from and I couldn't like, I couldn't like reconcile that. I was like, there's something about Jesus that doesn't have anything to do with how I was just treated in this church context. And, um, and so how do, I, how do I make sense of that? In the summer of 2014, she went public on her blog with a post entitled, What Happens When You Follow Jesus and He Leads You Out of Evangelicalism. I guess it's time to come out, she wrote. I don't identify as an evangelical anymore. The post went viral in Christian circles with over 60,000 hits in two days. I, I had to say, I can't give assent to the really intense um, religious right, which comes part and parcel with, with you know, the evangelical label. I can't do it anymore. I can't do with the misogyny that I see in, in evangelicalism um, broadly. Done. <laughs> like I can't, I can't give assent to that anymore. Um, and, and then there was the, the part of me coming out as an ally. And I, I had to say, obviously, this, this label of evangelical has gone along with this anti-gay position for so long. I can't do it. And I have to release myself from that. So it was a really freeing moment in my life, I think, and of, of, of letting go. There's a lot of, like I said, a lot of pushback. My family, it's, it's really, really painful conversations that happened after, after that. It's, it, my relationships still aren't where they were. Um, they're still challenged um, and tense because of those conversations and because of me moving away from, from that label and being so vocal about it. There was pain that came with leaving her old community behind, but going public with her doubts about the evangelical church allowed Candace to connect to a new community, both locally and online. There were other evangelicals and post-evangelicals who felt the same way she did. Eventually, she made her way to First Congregational Church, first as a parishioner and then, more recently, as the director of youth and adult ministry. For Candace, as for Russ Ware of the Wild Goose, the progressive bent of First Congregational is a welcome change from what she's used to. However, as someone raised on Christian rock worship music and the megachurch experience, she's still not sure that she's found her ideal Christian community. Being able to find a space um, that I can worship in, bringing my full self, 
that's hard. I don't know. I don't even know that I found that in my current job. As much as I love my community, I used to be a worship leader, you know, with guitar and my boots and a microphone in front of me and a monster band and lights and smoke and, you know, the works. Um, that's what I'm used to. That's like how part of how I interact with God. It's part of my it's part of my religious like fabric of my being um and we don't have that at first congregational we have pipe organs which is gorgeous it's beautiful but it's this different thing and i think that a lot of people who are identifying as post-evangelical or kind of trying to find new space new way of being um i think it's that's a hard space it's like is that cultural stylistic um, thing more important than content and community uh, or where do you place value? But while Candace Datz wants to dress her post-evangelical faith in some of the familiar cultural aspects of her evangelical upbringing, others want just the opposite. Many young evangelicals, says author Brett McCracken, want to keep their relationship to God hidden on the inside, while they blend in seamlessly with secular culture on the outside. McCracken has been watching how young Christians tread the line between the allure of secular culture and their faith since he was in college. In 2010, he wrote a book called Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide which explores the complexity of the dilemma that young evangelicals often face when considering how to shed some of the cultural baggage of their evangelical upbringing while also preserving their identity as Christians. When I was at Wheaton College, I first started thinking about the, um, this idea as a book. Um, just being at Wheaton and seeing kind of a lot of my peers and there's people around me who were like total hipsters, but, you know, they were Christians. They were at this, like, evangelical um, school, Wheaton College, pursuing Jesus faithfully, trying to do that. But they were also, um, you know, very much that they looked, talked, acted like any hipster you would see on the streets of Brooklyn. I mean, they, you know, some of them smoked pot and like listened to, you know, to all the same music from Brooklyn and all the same movies. And so I just started thinking about just how interesting it is that this, this same like subculture that was kind of developing in the parlance of pop culture, the hipster, it, it, it existed almost in the same form in, in Christian subcultures. And, and so I, I was, I became interested in exploring, like, how are they different? Like, are there, are there different things about Christian hipsters? I mean, at this time, were you also skeptical of these people who you were seeing around who kind of presented themselves as quote unquote hipsters, uh, were you skeptical of, of that and of their claim to also be Christian? You know, it was always sort of a tension that I felt because on one hand I sympathized with them and, and I was, I overlapped with that culture in some ways. And uh, so I absolutely um, understood where they were coming from. I, I liked the same things they liked in many cases. Um, but at the same time, I definitely did feel a little bit of dissonance with like, well, wait, aren't we aren't we supposed to be different in some ways from from quote unquote the world? Like, is it a problem that we we talk, we act, we look, you know, like ever anyone else in the world? Like, should there be anything distinct about Christians? So I think I felt a tension there, and and that's and, and it was a, and it was a self critical tension in myself. So I wanted to explore that tension. 
For a long time, the Christian answer to the cool problem was to create a kind of parallel cultural universe that looked, sounded, and felt like secular culture, but delivered a Christian message. New Life Church's rock concert feel was typical of this approach. Chris Davis is a friend of mine. He's a scruffy, pensive 26-year-old who now makes zines and plays in punk bands. He grew up in the Nazarene Church, the same denomination as Focus on the Family founder James Dobson. Chris lived for many years straddling that parallel Christian world and the secular culture it mirrors. I remember growing up there was a, in Colorado Springs alone, which isn't, you know, super big, there was a phone book whose name escapes me, but was like a, a weird Christian phone book where it was like, you need a plumber? Here's a plumbing company and uh, they're Christians. And here's like a carpenter that's a Christian. And there's Christian music. There's the Dove Awards, which are the Emmys. And there are, you know, there are, there were Christian answers to everything. But for Chris, Christian culture alone couldn't hold his attention. After he graduated from high school in Colorado Springs, he moved to Nampa, Idaho, where he started college at Northwest Nazarene University. It was there that his faith began to morph. I went into Northwest Nazarene University as a very sincere, church-going, Bible-reading, daily-praying individual. And over the course of the next three years, kind of got disillusioned and ended up kind of bowing out from church. And for a long time, I described it to people as, uh, when they're like, if, if somebody asked or somebody talked about religion or somebody, you know, it's like I'm agnostic by default because I don't really have, I'm scared of making a choice. He drifted out of the church, left college, and moved back to Colorado Springs. He got into record collecting and played in a few bands. While he may have been privately wrestling with questions of faith, from the outside he was just another 20-something who enjoyed debating the finer points of music and film and literature with friends over cigarettes and cheap beer. I moved back to Colorado Springs in 2010. I kind of spent a couple of years with my head down and knew that I had to, you know, make some kind of decision about the church, if nothing else, for simply because I grew up in it, in the church, and it was a, you know, a part of me, and it's, you know, a part of my, you know, psyche. Uh, but essentially, being too um, kind of confused and scared to do anything about it, because once you make a choice, you got to stick with that choice, and you can't make a choice and say, oh, I did the wrong thing, or I'm a Christian, or, or I you know, believe in, 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 in the tenets of Jesus Christ or all that, and then go back to what you were doing. Oh, it doesn't make sense. And so I, I was kind of scared of having to make this choice where I had to say, I'm this or I'm not that. And so for a long time, for a couple of years, I was, you know, agnostic by default and just kind of did whatever I felt like, you know, really. In recent years, Chris has started to drift back toward the church but not all of his doubts have been settled, and he doesn't have any desire to return to the particular church he was raised in. I am uncomfortable with the idea of being Nazarene, or more specifically, uh, an evangelical in how I know it, which is to say, 
emphasizing the idea of evangelism. Like many young Christians who've left evangelicalism, Chris hasn't quite found a form of religious practice that feels exactly right, but he's looking for it. I am more interested in elements of the high church, in which, which is to say there's an emphasis on community, and not just community within the church, the congregation, but the, the community of believers uh, going back, you know, generations and centuries, which is why the high church, you know, why specifically the high church? Because you're engaging in these acts that haven't changed in hundreds of years. Still, Chris struggles with the need to feel certain. There's, there's this verse in the Bible, and I wish I could cite it or source it, but basically says, uh, if you're hot, be hot. If you're cold, be cold. If you're lukewarm, forget about it. I spit that out of my mouth. Uh, and basically what, what, what it's been taken to mean is, if you're going to be a Christian, be a Christian. If you're not going to be a Christian, not be a Christian. Uh, but don't half-ass it. There's no middle ground. For Brett McCracken, author of the book Hipster Christianity, When Church and Cool Collide, this struggle to commit is the crux of the problem that many young Christians face. But as an evangelical Christian himself, he worries that too many young people are spending too much time looking for the perfect church. We shouldn't approach church through this consumer lens of, you know, it needs to fit all of my check boxes, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop going if it, if it fails to meet all the things that I want it to be, or if it's not like meeting me exactly where I'm at. With, with church, I think we have to, at some point, just embrace, embrace it and all of its awkwardness and imperfection. And yes, you want to align as much as you can, but um, I think too many millennials and too many young people these days are like, are like pointing to one or two things that are wrong with their church and they're leaving because of that. I guess the larger question here is, is Christianity in some fundamental structural way incompatible with this kind of desire to be 100% in line with what is trendy and what is hip in secular culture? The idea of cool is necessarily um, always changing. It's ephemeral. Like it, it fashions have to come and go and you know there there's there's always a sense of moving on to the next thing because because the current thing has been co-opted and is is now on the shelves of target so you always have to be moving on and and i think that alone like you can see like how does that fit with something like christianity which you know the gospel hasn't changed and like the story of jesus isn't different from day to day and from month to month it isn't that ephemeral trendy sort of thing so I think right there, there's a dissonance. And another point I would say is like, cool is fundamentally about like um, individualism, and it's about like setting yourself apart and and blazing your own trail that's distinct from what everyone else is doing. It's, it's about look at me, look at how unique I am. And Christianity is like it's countercultural in the sense that it pushes us outside of ourselves. It forces us to to like humble ourselves and to to look at the best interest of the other person and our neighbor more than ourselves. This is Wish We Were Here. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
Wish We Were Here is supported by the Blue Star, a Colorado culinary destination at the foot of Pikes Peak, working with nearby farmers and ranchers to provide fresh, locally grown ingredients for lunch and dinner. Check them out at thebluestar.net. Welcome back to Wish We Were Here. I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black. If you're just joining us, we're looking at evangelical Christianity in Colorado Springs in the decades since Ted Haggard's sex scandal shook the foundations of the so-called evangelical Vatican. In the months after Ted Haggard's fall, Patton Dodd, Haggard's ghostwriter, watched as many of his friends at New Life struggled to make sense of what had happened. Despite his close working relationship with Haggard at the time, Patton had long since given up on the idea that New Life could be his spiritual home. In the wake of the scandal, he found himself in a unique position as both an insider and outsider to the New Life community. I spent years actually having coffees and beers and meals with, with New Lifers who were wrestling through these issues. I still do it, actually. Um, because the you know it continues to reverberate some, um, but I kind of yeah um, I I uh, try to make myself available as someone who really understood what it was like to question everything, to lose faith completely, to um, find out that the leader who had brought you to faith wasn't all that you thought he was. As Dodd remembers it. The crisis in the New Life community after the scandal was about much more than just Ted Haggard. The details of Ted's scandal were sort of, everyone who was close to him always thought that that was sort of the least interest, interesting thing about it. But they were all, what they were always concerned with was the, all that had been happening in the years previous. All the political leadership and sort of celebrity Christian stuff and the, and the grasping for power. And that's the stuff that they, they wanted to turn away from. And... I think I've done so in many respects. Patton no longer identifies as an evangelical, but he's still a Christian. And like many others we spoke to, he spent a long time looking for a church that he can call home. And so do you go to church now? Um, well, I've just moved to San Antonio three months ago, and we have been going to an Episcopalian church um, which is probably the most cliched <laughs> destination possible for someone like me, but it is what it, it is what it is. Um, and um, it's the first time in many years where my wife and I have shown up at a church and felt like we want to keep coming back. Um, I've been in and out of church for most of my adult life, and um, faith has persisted for me. Like surprisingly, it's faith has stuck around even when I thought I was sort of done with it. It kept keeping back, and yeah, I mean this this church community that we've been uh, visiting lately, and that I think we're going to become members of, is one that is a mixed-up community of people who are uh, very, you know, progressive, barely believers <laughs> kinds of Christians. Who see everything as a who see everything as just a symbol, and people who are very pious and who take it more literally, and and uh, it's a crazy community of people whose politics and theological positions seem to be all over the place, and they're all kind of trying to figure it out together. 
um, mostly by serving their city together. And it's kind of, it's kind of cool. And so in as much as communities like that exist, that call themselves Christian, that's probably what we'll make ourselves members of. For those who remain faithful to the evangelical tradition, the political and cultural power they once enjoyed is now mostly a distant memory. And in Colorado Springs, the cultural divisions between the Christian and secular communities seems to be fading as well. Downtown Colorado Springs, once thought by some New Lifers to harbor demonic spirits, is now home to a satellite congregation of New Life Church. It has offices catty-corner from the Wild Goose Meeting House in the center of downtown. New Life Downtown is led by Pastor Glenn Packiam. Packiam, who's now in his 30s, has been at New Life since the early 2000s. A relatively new member of Ted Haggard's team of young worship leaders at the time of the scandal, Pacquiam has grown a congregation at New Life Downtown that caters to a different crowd. In some ways, the service itself doesn't diverge much from the New Life formula that Ted Haggard popularized during his heyday. There's a praise rock band, lyrics to the songs are projected onto a large screen, and a sermon follows. But there are differences too. The service takes place in the auditorium of a public high school, a far cry from the multi-million dollar main facility up north. Here's Pastor Glenn Packham. We do things in a fairly simple sort of way, and I'm speaking here of the lack of production and lights and anything like that. And not that I think any of those things are bad, I just think it fits our people, our people downtown, it's like we're, we're not looking to be entertained we're, and we're not looking to sort of have something that's performancy. Now, be very careful here because I'm not by default saying that New Life North is, oh, they are looking to be entertained. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there is a particular suspicion of the slick um, with our folks that come downtown. And we and I think we feel that way as leaders. I you picture this this morning. At a service in early November at New Life Downtown, Pacquiam's sermon has an intellectual tone. He discusses the topic of biblical interpretation, of learning to read the Bible while bearing in mind the historical context in which it was written and the audience it was written for. There are people taking notes. Also, at the center of the stage, there's a table draped in fabric with a cross and several baskets sitting on top. It's for communion, something not commonly seen at Sunday services at evangelical churches. In the evangelical tradition, the pastor's personality or charisma is often what unites the congregation. According to Pacquiam, New Life Downtown was born out of a desire to offer a more liturgically centered service where the pastor is less central. I had done a Sunday night service at New Life for a couple years um, prior to starting downtown, and we had introduced some of these liturgical practices and some, some more rooted um, traditions of the church and incorporating it with contemporary music and all of that, and discovered that it, it was resonating with people, one, because it didn't really center on a person. Uh, when you're calling people to come to a communion table or to say a prayer that's hundreds of years old, it all of a sudden decenters um, an individual. And so we realized that that was really helpful to people who were on the margins of faith. You alluded earlier to people who had maybe grown up evangelical and walked away, you know. Um, I think there were a lot of those people who were on the borderlands, if you will, of faith, which I kind of believe, kind of don't. But they didn't want another personality-driven show, you know. 
And we were discovering that the way that we were stumbling into this service on Sunday nights was resonating with people. And so then we said, we got to get this away from the north end of town. <laughs> let's, let's do this downtown. And um, so that began Easter Sunday of 2012. Since then, the two services at New Life Downtown have grown to attract close to a thousand congregants on any given Sunday. It's nothing even close to the scale that New Life once aspired to and achieved. But according to Pacquiam, New Life is a different place today. And New Life Downtown is just one expression of the new direction the church has taken since Brady Boyd took over as senior pastor in 2007. One of the beautiful things that Brady has done is to say, look, we're, we're not sure that there are good ways of, of quote-unquote, making national impact, because oftentimes you end up reaching for vehicles of power, and that, that's always a troubling relationship when churches do that. Um, but what we can do is try to find the point of, of the greatest pain in our own city and see what we can do with that. In the early 2000s, when Ted Haggard was leading the National Association of Evangelicals and George W. Bush was in the White House, New Life was about size, influence, and national, if not international, leadership. Now, Pacquiam says, New Life has taken a more inward-looking approach to faith that de-emphasizes the importance of politics. Instead, it's looking to build bridges and serve the community. Very early on, Brady began to do some question-asking with people in the city to say, where are the gaps in taking care of the vulnerable in our city? What are some ways that we can partner and be involved? And so out of that has come the Dream Centers of, of Colorado Springs, you know, from uh, the Women's Health Clinic to... Uh, the apartment complex that was just opened this summer called Mary's Home um, for, for single moms and their kids who find themselves in homeless situations. So, we're, we're, again, we're trying to find small, tangible, faithful expressions of the love of Jesus locally uh, rather than the, 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 the maybe more dramatic attempts. For Pacquiam, this is how the church is working to answer what he sees as a fundamental spiritual question. I mean, I think for us, we were forced to say, all right, what does it really mean to be the people of God in this city, in Colorado Springs? For a brief period in the 2000s, New Life Church was virtually synonymous with evangelicalism, both locally and nationally. Today, it's just one of many Christian congregations in this city trying to do its version of good in the world. And likewise, this city, once known as the Evangelical Vatican, is quietly becoming something else. New life has ventured downtown, while places like First Congregational Church have taken in people like Candace Datz and Russ Ware, who have strong ties to evangelical culture. As First Congregational Pastor Benjamin Broadbent sees it, people from different religious backgrounds are finding common ground in ways that defy the liberal versus conservative culture war narrative that long defined this city. And as far as he's concerned, that's a good thing. I think conversations are happening, lines are being crossed that hadn't been crossed before. Uh, I think it was Brian McLaren, who's a writer, evangelical, post-evangelical writer, who said a lot of people are meeting at the back fences of their traditions. And they're going, hmm, what you got going on over there? That looks kind of interesting. Yeah, we've never done that before. How do you do that? And I think some of those back fences aren't just Christian back fences, but people from different traditions or no tradition, just simply being interested in what people bring from their various backgrounds. It's exciting. Wish We Were Here is a production of KRCC Radio Colorado College. 
You can hear this episode again at krcc.org, or you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Special thanks to our intern, Maddie Howard, and production assistant, Amelia Whitmer. For KRCC and Wish We Were Here, I'm Jake Brownell. And I'm Noel Black.